I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. There are plenty of controversial topics in education policy, but perhaps none draws as much heat as the role of teachers' unions. In a recent interview, New Jersey governor and Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie said that the American Federation of Teachers deserves a punch in the face, calling it the single most destructive force in public education in America. There's no doubt that public education is among the most unionized industries in the United States, with more than 60 percent of teachers working under a union contract. But is there evidence to suggest that teachers' unions are an obstacle to school improvement? Or are they instead a positive force, helping to recruit and retain a more effective teaching workforce? Hello and welcome to the EdNext podcast. I'm Marty West, Executive Editor of Education Next, and joining me today by phone is Michael Lovenheim, Associate Professor of Policy Analysis and Management at Cornell University. Along with Alexander Willen, Mike is the author of a new study in the latest issue of Education Next with the title, A Bad Bargain, How Teacher Collective Bargaining Affects Students' Employment and Earnings Later in Life. Thanks for joining me today, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So as the title of your article suggests, you find that the adoption of state laws requiring school districts to bargain with teachers unions has not been a good thing for American students. And we'll get to those findings and what they imply for policy in a minute. But let's just first step back and ask a basic question. Why has this question of how unions affect school quality been so hard for researchers to address? How can it be that, you know, 50 years after the advent of collective bargaining in public education, we still don't know whether it's been a good or a bad thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and it's something that uh, has motivated me, my research for a long time when I first started working on this topic. I just kind of assumed we, we would know these answers, and it, and it turns out there's a lot of tricky issues in, in uh, trying to uh, measure the effects of unionization. I think the biggest one, uh, the biggest obstacle is that the uh, unionization movement, for teachers at least, happened uh, a while ago. It, it was really a phenomenon that occurred in the 1960s and 1970s. And so if you, what you want to do is look and see how outcomes in a district changed over time when uh, a school district was allowed to unionize or decided to unionize, you need to go back to the 1960s and 1970s. And that's actually a time period when we don't have a lot of good outcome data for students. We didn't uh, regularly test our students the way we do now. We just don't have a lot of good data that we can link to student outcomes. Uh, currently, we have a lot more uh, education data due to the accountability movement uh, and, and other education policies, but we don't have a lot of variation across districts or across states in which districts are allowed to bargain. Well, of course, we do have we do have some states that you know, prohibit collective bargaining altogether. And, and a lot of people would, would say, well, why can't we just compare those states, uh, you know, many of which are in the South uh, or the, the West, and uh, compare the performance there to, to other states? You're not comfortable doing that. That's exactly right. And, and the reason is uh, those states differ in systematic ways from the states that allow collective bargaining. And, and so, uh, you know, if you're comparing uh, a state in the South that doesn't allow collective bargaining to another state that does, those states are going to differ along a lot of different dimensions right, that you want to account for in the uh, estimation strategy. And if you don't, you know, and you, you 
attribute all of the differences across the states to differences in collective bargaining laws, that's going to lead to uh, yeah, incorrect conclusion. All right. So we know that Massachusetts and Minnesota have relatively high performing school systems, despite strong teachers unions and a heavy reliance on collective bargaining. But, uh, you know, that tells us that it's possible to run a pretty good school system with those conditions in place. But it doesn't tell us anything about whether collective bargaining sort of uh, helps or hinders them achieve those results. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. It's it's and and you know I think it's important to realize even with the study we're doing, you know, it's not whether teachers unions destroy public education or are or eliminating them would destroy public education, right? There's there's going to be effects there that you can't necessarily nail down when you just look across uh, states or across school districts because you know the effects might be subtle actually that and and they'd be hard to pick up from the rest of the variation going on that generates, you know, student outcomes. All right. Schools. So, so let's dive into your study then. Tell us how you and Alexander approach this problem if it's so hard. So, what what uh, the kind of thought experiment here was? We wanted to compare students who were in very similar educational environments, uh, other than the fact that some were exposed to collective bargaining and some weren't. And so, what we wanted to do was we wanted to link uh, students within states over time uh, and look at how their outcomes changed when uh, collective bargaining was introduced. And the way we did that was using uh, the American Community Survey, which is basically the, the modern iteration of the U.S. Census. Uh, and one of the questions they ask is where you were born, and we know the people's age. So we can link people back to the state in which they were born and the uh, birth cohorts that they belong to, and then look within states uh, over uh, across birth cohorts and see how outcomes may have changed uh, when cohort birth cohorts were differentially exposed to teacher collective bargaining based on where they were born. Okay, so we're, we're comparing students in the same state before and after the state adopted collective bargaining laws. So most of that variation is happening in the 60s and 70s. Uh, That's right. And then you're looking at those students' outcomes as adults. Uh, tell us a bit about the outcomes that you're looking at. So uh, we look at a broad uh, array of educational attainment and labor market outcomes. And the really nice feature of our approach is that we can look at what happens to these students in the long run. And there's a lot of evidence coming out that short-run effects of educational interventions don't necessarily tell us a lot about what's going to happen in the long run for students. And what we really want is outcomes when people are in their 30s and 40s and 50s and in the labor market. You know, we want to see how their educational attainment turned out. Uh, we can see how much they work. So we, uh, in our study, we look at uh, labor force participation. We look at employment. We look at hours worked. Uh, and then we can also look at earnings, right, uh, which is a nice summary measure of uh, you know, success in the labor market. Yeah. So most education research obviously deals with test scores as an outcome. Uh, we don't have test scores for this historical period that you all are looking at here. You mentioned that as a challenge before. So you're trying to sort of make that challenge into a, a area of strength for your research by saying, let's uh, actually study the bottom line outcomes that we care about in the long run. Um, and I think that's right, that there's uh, a lot of evidence to suggest that test scores can be misleading indicators uh, sometimes. So, um, uh, so that that strikes me as a real strength. So you all find that attending a school in a state uh, or attending school, I guess, in a state with a duty to bargain law in place for all 12 years. So a, a law requiring districts to bargain with unionized teacher. Um, 
teachers uh, will lower a student's annual earnings by about eight hundred dollars, uh, or right. you say about two percent relative to the average. Mm-hmm. Um, so the result is obviously statistically significant, or I, else you wouldn't be talking about it or writing it up. Uh, <laughs> right. But my guess is that to some readers, it will sound quite small. So help us understand the size of this effect. Is it is it big or large or, or small? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's always difficult to characterize results as big or small. So, uh, and and I agree. I, I think you know, from an individual perspective, the effects are pretty modest. And, and you, know, you can come back and say, well, you know, why don't we just know this? Looking at uh, across schools and across states that do or don't allow uh, unionization or don't don't allow collective bargaining. And and the answer is, well, the effects from an individual perspective are pretty subtle. Right, and and so we wouldn't necessarily just see this in the data, uh, or, or or see it kind of uh, playing out, you know, when we compare people uh, across different uh, environments. Uh, so you know, two percent wage earning uh, uh, penalty per per person is somewhat uh, modest, but when you aggregate it up, it get, becomes very large. And so the implications for any one person are are somewhat small, but the implications for society are are big, because when you Multiply that two percent by every student uh, affected by this across the thirty-four states that allow collective bargaining or that have these duty-to-bargain laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, the effects become large on the order of about one hundred ninety-six billion dollars of lost earnings a year annually across the United States. That's right, and so um, you know I think it's this combination where uh, for each person, right, the effects are modest, but because so many people are affected by this. Uh, by by teacher collective bargaining, the effects for society are pretty large. Another way I thought about thinking about the magnitude was that, uh, you know, we have uh, a number of estimates of the return to an additional year of schooling, right? And I think mm-hmm. those generally are in the ballpark of 8 to 10 percent uh, yep, of earnings. Right. And so, you know, one way to think about this is... is uh, to say a quarter of a year of schooling or something uh, to that effect in terms of the earnings returns. That's right. Yeah. And and so in that way, it's, it sounds maybe more uh, like a larger effect <laughs> when you uh, for for the individual. And and you know, eight hundred dollars. You tell most people, you know, here's here's uh, something that's going to affect your earnings by eight hundred dollars a year for your entire working life. They would say that that's actually a lot of money, right? If you if you take the net present value of that across someone's entire working life, uh, I haven't done that calculation, but mm-hmm. now that we're speaking about it, I definitely should. It, it, it's a non-trivial amount of money. So you also find negative effects on some outcomes related to employment. So the number of hours worked and the probability of having a job at all, this level of skills required in your chosen occupation. Uh, But you don't find effects on the amount of schooling students complete. So how could it be the case that we're seeing sort of very clear effects across a broad range of employment outcomes, but uh, no effects on educational attainment? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's somewhat, uh, you know, the the part of the study that, that has the results that uh, were, were the most puzzling to us in some sense when we were doing this. Uh, but I think, you know, the answer is uh, twofold. One is that, you know, educational attainment is only one measure of human capital or, or the amount of, of education or knowledge people have, right? And, and what we could be seeing here is that there's a quantity quality uh difference that it's not really affecting the quantity of education uh but it's affecting the quality of education and and kind of a related thing is it could be affecting other aspects of the uh education process in in uh most notably uh non-cognitive skills mm. 
and and so this is something that we're planning on expanding the study. Uh, we just got data from the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth uh, that has non-cognitive skills measures in them, and so we're going to look directly from this time period to see if we can see evidence of changes in, in these non-cognitive skills that wouldn't necessarily affect how much education you get, but we there's a growing amount of evidence that these non-cognitive skills matter a lot uh, uh-huh. for labor market outcomes. And so if, and, and that schools can produce these non-cognitive outcomes. And so if, if that's one of the mechanisms through which uh, collective bargaining is impacting students, we'd actually expect to see the pattern of results we find. So you're obviously continuing your work on this topic, but let's talk right now about, you know, what your results so far mean for policymakers. As you discuss in the mm-hmm. article, states like Wisconsin and Michigan have recently passed laws intended to limit teachers' unions' negotiating power uh, by doing things like limiting the topics that can be negotiated or prevented un- preventing unions from collecting representation fees from teachers who choose not to join. Uh, Ohio governor and presidential candidate John Kasich attempted to do the same only to have Voters repeal the changes through a referendum. Uh, has this research sort of uh, changed or informed your views on on this ongoing debate? Yeah, I think uh, it, it's made me a lot more receptive to this idea that we need to think about which policies are are right in in terms of how to design these teacher college bargaining laws, right, that that uh, perhaps allowing for unrestricted collective bargaining uh, in the ways that, that we historically have in these duty to bargain states might not be uh, the best policy. But we also need to be a little careful in drawing a lot of conclusions here. Right? As we talk about in, in the paper, these laws were passed, we're looking at, at outcomes driven by an educational system that's different in many ways from our own. Right? And mm-hmm. so whenever you look at long-run outcomes, that's the trade-off you get, which is that you, you need to be able to generalize to today's policy environment because you're looking at long-run outcomes, but you're generalizing that from a, a, a historic policy environment. And so there could potentially be changes that make the results uh, less relevant, like you wouldn't expect to see as large negative effect. Uh, of course, there could also be changes pointing in the opposite direction, right? Absolutely. Uh, it can go either direction. We know that right. cognitive skills have become me- more important for students' sort of labor market outcomes. And so uh, you could imagine sort of uh, mechanisms that would would cause you to reach even stronger conclusions were you able to study the same question in real time today. That's right. And I, I agree completely with that. And and I think, that, you know, this is in substance, the first study to, to show effects uh, on, on collective bar- of collective bargaining uh, laws on long-run outcomes of, of students affected by those laws. Uh, and I, I think the real thing this has highlighted to me is we really need more work trying to dig into which aspects of these collective bargaining laws mm-hmm are affecting students, right? Because, you know, if we could find the aspects of the collective bargaining laws that seem to be negatively impacting students, uh, we might be able to change these laws in a, in a very careful way to preserve the rights of teachers to collectively bargain more broadly, which they seem to value a lot, uh, in, in which a lot of people in these states that allow this value um, and so, you know, can we preserve that right uh, and that uh, that these teachers like, while also making collective bargaining laws kind of more uh, aligned with uh, producing student outcomes that we want? 
So it sounds like there's a lot more work to be done. You haven't uh, put us all out of business yet with this study, but uh, no. <laughs> we, uh, actually you've, you've done exactly what good research should do, which is point to uh, important additional questions. So, uh, Mike, congratulations on the paper. Thanks for letting us uh, publish it in Education Next, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.